BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Super interesting subject today, diversity training. Is it a fact or is it a fail? Do we preach it or do we ditch it, especially with all the stuff that's going on in the news? So we're going to be looking at a number of very interesting questions. Do these programs, these diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, mostly training programs, do they work? Does it actually result in less racism and less bias and less of the things that we don't want or does it result ironically in more how do we sift through the noise and separate the politically correct from the productive so lots to discuss and it's kind of been in the news right jesus yeah so why don't, why don't we just go ahead and get started i mean big part of the reason why we're talking about it now is that of course as what seems to be now a theme for our conversations is many times they are sort of sparked by some something political that's happening in this case uh, the White House put out an executive order on September 4th by President Trump, uh, practically um, canceling some of the diversity training uh, that is being done in the federal government. Now, th the main reason for that is that, well, he was directing basically federal agencies to cease and desist from using taxpayer dollars to fund uh, these, and I put in quotes, divisive and un-American propaganda training sessions, right, as the way they were being described. And specifically, the spending was related to any training on either critical race theory, white privilege, or any other training or propaganda efforts that teaches or suggests either that the United States is an inherently racist or evil country, or number two, that any race or ethnicity is inherently racist or evil. Now, I think it's an important one for us to talk about. One, because I think it raises a much bigger point about sort of uh, the, the effectiveness and the type of diversity training. But before we get into that, why don't mm -hmm. we talk a little bit about when you saw this Yeah this uh, executive order, what sort of came to mind for you, Charlie? I knew we were going to be talking heard? about it. That's that's one of the things that I knew because when I saw it, I was like, look, this hits kind of, you know, squarely into what you and I do for a living with Black Brown, number one. And number two is it, you know, sort of wades right into this discussion um, that in some cases we think of strategically, right? So where is like a company's opportunity and what is their responsibility vis-a-vis -vis diversity? Is it just to kind of do HR uh, things or is it to go deeper? So I thought it was like, number one, like right in the crosshairs of the kind of thing that we would be discussing. And the very first thing that I do that I that I did, which and you know is a theme here or becoming one, is I went to the source, right? So, right. actually, and and by the way, you said executive order. Uh, if it is, you may be right. I, I actually don't know if it's an executive order. I oh, saw maybe yeah, maybe mis misquoting. Yeah, in terms of what it I, is. I think it's um, um, what I saw was a memo 
It, that, it is. It's a memo. I just pulled yeah. it up. It's a memo uh, for the heads of executive departments and agencies. Got it. Okay, because that's yeah, what so I read. It's a little bit different than you're right than executive. Right. Order. So, so I, I went and I looked fault. at that at that particular memo and I read it to understand. Okay, what is it that these people are trying to? Who? who first of all, who is trying to say it? What if it is attributable directly to Trump? What if it is attributable to somebody else? What is it that they're actually saying? So I kind of went through it and I did, to the point you just covered right now, tease out that the thing it seems like they're, um, I guess, canceling or, the, the or, or attempting to, or the focus of it is this idea yeah. of critical race theory, um, you know, white privilege or programs, to your point, that support this idea that we're, we're an evil country or that there's a race that's better or worse or more racist or less racist than than another. And it seemed that that was the focus of it. Now, you know, just at the highest level, it, it definitely seems like it's a response to something, like a reaction to something like this. Right. And it does reference the memo, to your point, it does reference Trump directly. It says it's well, come it, to it the- It came from Trump. I mean, the, the memo itself came from uh, the director, which is Russell Vought, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that was something that Trump specifically well mentioned. yeah and I guess what I'm saying is a lot of the times you'll read these documents and they say you know the admiral of the navy says or whatever right. and even in some of those cases maybe they are getting it directly from Trump in this case the memo itself though says it has come to the attention of the president oh yeah, I mean. yeah, yeah yeah so it starts right. out that way. And so clearly the whole connection to Trump is clear. So number one is I definitely thought it was like a reaction or a response to something. This is very, like, it's definitely food for the bases, let's call it that way. I know it's the food for the Trump base, for sure, but it's also food for the other base, right? So it's like, in a way, there's something that immediately sparks, you know, conversation and chaos on both sides of the equation. So it's like super contentious. Yeah. And then, so initially, yes, came from Trump. Second thought that I had is this is definitely kind of contentious on both sides. It's immediate, um, you know, meat for the base in the sense that it's something that you can see all of the, the the Trump, you know, folks and people who are very much on that camp going damn straight. You know, we shouldn't be teaching that this country right. sucks and all this other stuff. And then you can conversely see the other ones going, see what I mean? Like more racism. How, who could not want diversity? Jesus, come on. Diversity is a good thing. Yeah. Well, I guess part of what you're saying, though, is it came from somewhere, right? Well, well, in the somewhere, and I wish I would have had that here in front of me just to give you the exact date, but there was coverage by Fox News specifically that went into some of the, I believe, some of the content that was covered in some of these diverse uh, diversity trainings, of which I think it was framed as some of the rhetoric being used felt very anti-American and that there were tax dollars being used against this. And I think part of that was the response. Um, I'm sure Trump at some point heard it. And maybe looked into it and and responded in this manner. Well, he does have a healthy media diet. That's for sure. For sure does. I mean, you (laughs) know, what's interesting about this topic, Charlie, is that when looking at this, the thing that we don't have, maybe you do, but I I don't, is I don't actually know what is covered or not within these training sessions. Because, look, if we actually remove the name of Trump out of this conversation, and and, because we'll we'll talk about the Trump piece, obviously, quite a bit. But if you remove his name out of it, if I just hear... Hey, we're you know that we're teaching anti-American rhetoric as a way to help promote diversity. Like that's already gonna be a little bit hard to believe how that's gonna be an effective message and how that's gonna cause people to want to actually embrace other other groups. Yeah. If it comes in a manner that it feels like it's attacking the country or attacking people. Having said that, we actually don't know. I haven't seen any of that. So I when I see something like this, I immediately get a little bit of concern. It's like, well, this is the way that it's being framed. But what worries me the most, I guess what I find most interesting, this is the, you know, I think now also a theme for President Trump is if there's a topic that could potentially be hazardous 
Man, he sure finds ways to He'll like right light him on it. fire yeah. right at the worst possible time. I mean, well, we're, we're living in the moment of yeah. a lot of the country trying to figure out how it's dealing with racism because of all these events that we've talked about sure. with George Floyd, et cetera. Sure. And to be this be the moment where you're saying, no, 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 in this moment of racial reckoning in this country is the moment we don't want to have diversity. We want to get diversity training canceled because we don't like parts of it. It's just like... <laughs> I'm not sure what to say to that, you know? Yeah, there's definitely a timing component, but the timing is obviously, um, you know, significant and strategic, right? I think, and by the way, that doesn't mean that I don't think he believes that this is bad. I believe he believes it's bad too, but I also think the timing, yeah. to your point, is just it's like, made, hey, this is- his base, for sure. It's like, it reminds me that there was a, <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, this is odd 80s reference, but in Back to the Future, I think the third one, the one where they go into the back, into the Wild West- it was the third one. It was yeah. the third one, right? There's like the train and it's got to pick up the 88 miles an hour yeah. and he keeps throwing the logs in it and it goes yeah. like, it explodes and brings it a little bit closer. That's how I think President Trump sometimes is with these things. It's like- That's he's, literally his whole presidency, he's trying to hit. Throw, he's trying to <laughs> hit the, logs 80, into the, <laughs> the 88 miles an hour, which is the re-election. And like, yeah. he's like, this one will get us a little bit closer. Oh my um, God. That's a great and, way to describe and, it. And that's literally what I visualize. Now, yeah. having said that, I don't think he doesn't believe that. I believe he does believe it. I believe that there's a lot of people of goodwill who can look at some of these trainings. And I'll answer your question about my own experience with these trainings. But there are people who will, who can look at these trainings and say, you know what? We don't, we can't bring people together by kind of pitting people against each other, right? That right. it sort of follows, it's a, it's a logical incongruency about like, we're, we can't bring us together if we're kind of pointing out all of our faults and, you know, or, or how bad we are for one another. So I do understand that. And I can definitely, from, you know, from my own experience, I've seen programs like this that are very innocuous, very like, hey, you know what? We all have to listen to each other. Everybody has a perspective. Everybody has a point of view. We should be open. Our aperture should be set in a way where we can get a lot of input. I've gone through those for sure. Right. And I've also maybe not gone through them, but I've done a little bit of research and even leading up to this podcast to see ones that are more mired in this kind of critical race theory thing, which is mentioned by name in the memo specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, no, they specifically uh, mentioned that. Yeah. The tricky thing about the memo though, and you and I know how this works in big companies, let alone in the government, that one memo can like, is almost like taking like a weed whacker to like, I don't know, to like a sandcastle, right? And trying to like isolate the little kernels you're trying to hit, you're gonna wipe out the whole thing, right? So that memo can literally the, be like yeah. a bowling ball through That's part like of the problem everything. here that we're talking about. It's is not that nuanced. Even if there is, legitimate concerns from some of the content that has been included in some of these training sessions, diversity training sessions. In essence, what he's doing is wiping them all out. It's it's a it's an open call out that we're not going to use tax dollars to support these diversity programs that are basically anti-American. And that's the, honestly from my, once again, I haven't actually, I haven't seen personally or experienced any of these diversity trainings. I'm saying that they don't exist. I'm sure some do. I've always... I've had concerns. Wait, wait, wait. You haven't had you haven't experienced any, or you haven't experienced ones that have like no, white privilege. Sorry, and critical yeah, race I didn't theory. finish that thought. Yeah, yeah, I haven't experienced any diversity training of which I would consider as being anti-American, or forget anti, because that's a big statement being anti-American, or I have this level of uh, what some of the other things that they talk about here, which is around white privilege and critical race theory, or things that could basically pin directly one race against another. What I have seen is plenty of examples of really inefficient and to their own demise, unfortunately, uh, diversity trainings that just yes. force someone to go through this yes. process that everyone comes out just hating it. 
And as a matter of fact, it has a much more negative result because of having gone through it rather than a positive one, right? And we'll talk about that. But I do think that there is a big distinction to be made. And unfortunately, with, with I think, at least in my perspective, this presidency many times, even when there is some kernels of truth or, or, or things they're trying to address, the approach of addressing them is, in my mind, the complete wrong way by completely wiping something out at the worst possible time. Mm-hmm. Because it really sort of points to this this sort of level of, you know, where does that fall in the in in the interest of the nation to want to want to deal with diversity within at least the the federal agencies, saying that for now we're going to put this aside because we don't like parts of it, even though this entire country is literally in parts of it still like on fire grappling with this major issue that has been unfortunately a big part of our history and, and continues to come up every every so often in major ways. I said weed whacker to a sandcastle, but I probably should have said like stick a dynamite for a cavity. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, it'll t- <laughs> yeah. it's going to take yeah, care of that cavity, cavity right gone. away. I mean, no head problem. Too, your head's yeah, going to yeah. be gone along with it. Um, <laughs> and, and that's the thing, right? Is like teasing out, okay, is there... Again, let's like if we if we're if we're critical about this, break down this memo and say, do we reasonable people, generally speaking, think it's a good idea for the federal government to be teaching people that the country is inherently evil? I think most reasonably, assuming it exists, right? Most reasonable people say, yeah, probably, probably not, not a good idea. Yeah, probably not, right? right? Okay, so like, but beyond that, you know, like there's very little nuance in this memo. And I agree with you that it's going to be, you know, the, the net effect will probably be sort of a raising, R-A-Z, not R-I-R-A-I-S, a raising of these programs throughout the federal government. And it'll have to be visited by either Trump in a reelection or the new president or uh, President Biden coming in. So, but I do think that there has been a lot made recently about critical race theory. I think it's definitely something I've heard a lot more about. There was a very... Uh, huge uh, New York Times bestselling book called White Fragility that came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did that come out? Like, I very don't know, recently. yeah, I've heard it's it. Not, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like this year for sure. Um, right. That, very, and, and it shot, you know, way up to the charts. It's mainstream, if you will, right? So sure. taking this concept of, that that's really been an academic kind of idea or construct now sort of into the mainstream. So there is definitely, like, it's not just some in my opinion, not just somebody being conspiratorial or whatever. I do think there's been much more of this kind of thing in the mainstream where- There's definitely kernels of yeah. truth, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, my I guess my response is not that there is no way that none of those diversity training ever even sure. come close to this. Um, maybe some do. I, I, I don't disagree with that. It, it's once again, your, your example, the dynamite to take out a, uh, uh, a cavity is probably the best way to sort of describe that. But I think the bigger question that this brought up uh, at least for as we were thinking about this, is that well, but if you really want to be critical about diversity and diversity training specifically, why not actually take a look at that? Because while I while I think that this is the wrong decision in the in the from the administration, I think what it doesn't it, it spoke to this un-American approach and that being a reason to cancel it. But what it did actually didn't get into, which I think is actually the bigger topic, is how effective is diversity training when you look at it as a whole. And the reality, there's a lot of data out there to say that, you know what, it's actually not that effective. Now, what we wanted to maybe do a little bit as we, as we talk about this is break it down a little bit more in terms of, well, what is the actual intent of diversity training? Yeah. Right? And so how we, do you define it even? Because, how do you I mean, define it? How do you, yeah. you know, we talk a lot about KPIs, right? And how do you measure success? Well, how do you measure success in diversity training, right? Is it just having people be more empathetic for other people, better understanding? Sure. I think that's part of it. 
but that's really hard to measure. Um, so when we think about intent, I mean, I kind of had it in sort of three core categories. Uh, one is basically to reduce bias uh, from people, right? And that gets reflected on bias between, you know, coworkers and the job itself, how they, they hire, and, and it typically gets reflected in things like hiring tests and ways of which new people sort of come into an organization. And then maybe lastly is how people within organizations um, are managed and, and promoted. So things like performance testing, the things that we use to measure sort of how well people are doing or, or not in a, in a specific role. Um, the, the Part of that intent as well is to be able to put in either training or additional sort of controls to police managers, people that manage other people, right? But the biggest driver for that is actually uh, the aim is really to prevent lawsuits, right? That's what it would have come from. And that's really a really, you know, I think important way to think about this because unfortunately, at least most of the cases that I could think of where you had massive change in an org- in either organization or industry was almost always a result of a major lawsuit, right? So in response, something bad had happened. Or the fear of one. Right, but but a lot of it was in response right now because of those right. big Somebody losses and all of a sudden a bunch of other people sued. had to do it, right? Right. But it, it never came from a positive sort of standpoint. They were like, you know, we got to be better as an organization, as an industry, and therefore let's do all these things to be better. Unfortunately, at least the roots of a lot of these type of programs were really more in response to something negative happening. And I think it has some pretty deep repercussions of that approach. I have very look, look preparing for this this podcast has been super interesting because I, we've read some of the same scholarship on this. I've never been a real big fan of kind of your traditional diversity training for a number of reasons and and I couldn't put my finger on necessarily the why. Like, well, I knew the why I thought, but okay. I didn't know that there was data behind the why. The why for me was it seems like we're providing a very easy box to check. That's my first sort of level of opposition yeah. to this is that, and by the way, especially now, right, we're in this kind of post-George Floyd, you know, Breonna Taylor, et cetera, Jacob Blake, look at all these things that are that the, that the country's been involved in. Every CEO, right? I mean, everyone has had a conversation around, what are we doing around diversity? Are we doing right. enough, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there wasn't a DEI officer, a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, there is now. Right. In fact, I've started to see some even new titles being created around this stuff. Yeah. By the way, if, if you want to sort of stress test that that concept, go to LinkedIn and do a search for DNI and uh, positions, sure. and you'll just find just yeah a lot of them all of a sudden yeah, look, posted and, over the and, last and, last few months. And again, God bless them. Awesome. I don't think it's it's a net negative in any case, but I do think that it's a it's a real temptation to me. So the thing I like least about these diversity trainings is it allows people to check a box and say, cool, I'm done. So like, I'm good, we've done it, whatever. I've never liked that. And I haven't liked that for a specific reason. And I've, you know, with you now where we're building this company, Black Brown, around this whole concept, which is there's more to diversity than checking the box. There's actually an opportunity, which you're not going to see. You're not going to see if you check the box and then walk away, right? And so um, so that's my, my kind of main point of opposition. The other part, which I think the data does get into, is this idea of how these things are implemented. Like if you make it right. mandatory, there's like a huge failure yeah. rate, right? And who isn't going to make it mandatory? And I can imagine coming out of the summer – you know, the emails from CEOs going mandatory sensitivity training and all this other stuff. And yet the data shows that actually like that's one of the keys to make it fail is if yeah. you make it mandatory. Well, maybe that's a good way to actually to kind of start talking about more specifics. One is what is the data that is being shown 
to reflect both either success and or failure, right? And and once again, while one of the, the things that you're trying to change is people's attitudes, right? Biases is based on sort of personal attitude, but that's really hard to measure. One of the maybe the easiest thing to measure is how does how does diversity training ultimately impact diverse representation in these various companies? So there was a study that we looked at. It was a Harvard Business Review that was done in August or at least published August 2016, right? And what they looked at is relative to the different types of programs around diversity, diverse, diversity training, job test, uh, grievances system, which we actually didn't talk about, but we'll get into that specific one as well. And when those were tailored for diversity, how did that actually impact representation? And what, at least at least from the study, what they found is that the the effects were all actually pretty negative in many cases. So not only were they not affected, but you actually went backwards in some cases, right? So as an example, from mandatory diverse training, there you saw a drop of about 9.2% in representation for black women. And this among managers over a five-year period, okay? Uh, about 9.2% drop in representation for black women. For Asian, both for men and women, was a drop for men about 4.5% drop. For women, about 5.4% drop. What was interesting, the case of job tests, and when job tests were, were implemented and specifically looked at as a way to be able to help hire more diverse people, it had a massive impact on black men, a 10% drop over that same five-year of, of, of once implemented in terms of, of those that were being hired. Women are almost about 9, 9, 9, 9.1%. For grievance and systems, these are, these are systems that organizations put in place so that employees can basically be able to route concerns that they have about how they're being treated. Many of these could be race-related uh, issues, and then parties were put in place to try to avoid lawsuits, right? As a mechanism internally, we're going to say, like, we're going to be better, we're going to handle these. And there's a number of reasons to why those are not very effective. One is they give people the false sense of security that actually you're going to be treated more fairly because there's an actual system in place to handle those kind of situations. And those almost across the board, from white women to black men and women, Hispanic, especially women, and Asian men and women, they all had a, a negative drop from as low as 2.7% to as high as 11.3% in the case of Asian men, right? Once again, over the same five-year period. So it's interesting that as you put some of these, these tools, these products in place to support diversity, and the net result is you actually have less diverse less people actually represented. And that actually, and in that, in, in that particular HBR study, that was looking at a, a mandatory um, control, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, because I think that that's, that's kind of one of the things that I, that, um, that makes sense when you hear it, that if you mandate something and you kind of force people through these things in a way they, they can, you know, they can look at it and, and maybe even rebel because they're kind of being put through it from a mandatory basis. So I definitely understand why there might be a negative, um, output on the basis of it being mandatory. I think the other two things that I looked at, um, in terms of the success or failure of these programs is when it's very much focused on the legal issues, right? So to your point, if it's like, you know, the, the, the training is all about why we don't want to do things because if we do, we can get sued, right? We can get sued right. because of some requirement not being hit, or we can get sued because somebody heard something in a particular way. And so I think that's another one of the hallmarks of a failed training program, a diversity training program, is when it's focused on, on legality. And then the third one that I saw 
that kind of led to to failure beyond mandatory and legal focused was when it was offered for kind of limited groups within the organization. Right, right. So right. if it's like it's we're going to put our managers through diversity training yeah. and everybody else is like what the hell is it, it just not- causes a lot of resentment, right? That's that's part of the problem with all of those. Everything you just described is like the wrong tonality. It's it comes out as a very negative approach, negative message like if you don't do this, we're going to get sued, right? So once again, it's not from a from a perspective of opportunity opportunity uh, perspective of growth we talk a lot about the benefit of diversity as a revenue driver as an innovation driver those are all very positive things that i think we're want to do but if you think about diversity more perspective if you don't do this we're gonna you know get sued it's just a very different sort of mindset and many things that you talked about being required you know people have a lot of animosity to that i mean it's just that when you're being forced to do something it actually has a negative effect and it was measured. By the way, just in the study, just to give a little bit more context there, it was around 829 mid-sized and large U.S. firms. And what the analysis specifically Which is a pretty did, big sample. I it's mean, a good sample, yeah. And the analysis specifically isolated the effects of diversity programs from everything else that was going on within those companies and, that, and the economy. So, you know, if you think about trying to measure success, well, you can't really measure attitude. You can at least measure outcome of representation. So it, it, it does sort of point to the fact that it felt like it was um, not really helping. Now, in some of these other areas that we didn't really talk about was one is, as it relates to job tests and even some of these grievances systems or even for um, for performance reviews, is what they found is many many times employees and many of those hiring managers found ways to kind of go around it, right? So in those job tests, while they were built to basically better represent or address uh, diverse candidates, they found that some of those hiring, hiring managers will kind of just cherry pick the information, right? Being way more critical of um, black candidates as opposed to white candidates based on their, their responses. And same thing for performance reviews. And we've seen it firsthand, right? One of the challenging things about putting a performance review system in place is that many times managers, unfortunately, will just say, look, give everyone high marks. And in some ways, it just completely takes away the power of that performance that performance review. Yeah. And then gets a chance to, depending on who they like more or not, can actually promote others, you know, one person or, or not. Because what it does, it takes away that trail that people could actually look at from a data standpoint from, from HR to see how people are actually doing. So if you were going to, I mean, build a a program to help sort of advance this concept of diversity, like what are, I'm just curious, like what are some things that you would think about including in that? Well, you know, I guess going back to the same, maybe one way to look at it is based on the same study, they actually talked about different types of programs that were a lot more effective, right? And think of them almost as counter arguments to the ones that we just described, right? So one is when they looked at volunteering, voluntary training, right? Providing it as an opportunity for people to learn more, to basically be able to address their own biases, but not mandatory. They saw that the result of that had a pretty positive impact uh, amongst different groups. One, the one that was, at least from the data says that they, they measured, for black men in particular, they saw a 13% increase in representation, right? For Asian women, it was like 12.6% increase, right? So pretty big jumps there. Yeah. Other things that they had, is, which I, I love this idea, this notion of having self-managed teams, right? So letting uh, performance reviews or teams happen within individual groups, and I think it does a lot. One, it, it also empowers the individuals, to be able to be more accountable to each other. And it creates that dynamic where you're actually having more proximity to other people that may not be like you, which I think was, uh, in my mind, that, that's, that's one of the biggest issues that is. you end up having. When you lack diversity in your organization, part of it is just lack of exposure. 
We've talked about the specific study that BCG, Boston Consulting Group, did a few years back about the quantifiable, I think it was close to 20% mm-hmm. increase in um, in revenue coming in from revenue, innovation. Right, which is like direct, I mean, money, right? So direct revenue from on the basis of better innovation driven by more diverse management teams. So there's no question that there is that like, you know, solid KPI Um you know, attached. I've kind of forgot where I was going with that, but the the BCG example. But what was it that you just said right before that? Uh, I was talking about self managed teams or teams that are actually in part of oh, proximity I, I, to each I other. I know where it was. My bad. So so yes, we've we've taken a look at the direct impact that 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 can be had with these diverse teams. Um, and the other thing that we've seen in our own work is what you just touched on there, which is the more uh, you know diverse a group of people you have the more the kind of openness to view these folks in a variety of different ways increases, right? And positive ways increases, right? right? So the exposure is directly proportional to your kind of view of that person's contribution and value to the overall organization. That's right. It's a fascinating kind of thing that we've seen in our own work. Yeah. Exposure is a a massive one, right? I mean, it's it's the... And that's, I think that's especially a really hard thing to do when you really don't have natural access to other people um, because we all tend to get into our own little bubbles, whether it's yeah. socially, whether it's in, in you know, in, in profession, in your, in your business profession, which falls right in line to maybe some of the other things they had, right? So self-managed team was a, was a big one as well. Cross-training, another big one, right? And you can think about that at cross-training. You can, think, you can think of it in two ways. One is cross-training because you get additional skills from trying or from learning other sort of parts of an organization. But I also think if you if you do a double-click into that area as well, it probably increases the amount of exposure that individual will have against other people from an organization that may not look like them, right? And I think that's, uh, once again, I think a much more effective manner to bring understanding into an organization to better understand the different perspectives that different diverse people bring to the table that ultimately have a direct line impact and having more diverse people getting hired into these places and getting promoted. Yeah. So making a voluntary exposure, cross-training, these are all kind of things that could, and I agree with those. I, I do think there's one thing that the the articles and the scholarship that we looked at also suggested was doing some kind of pre-work, this uh, sort of implicit bias test and all that. And I, I've got a, a you know, maybe a bit of a rather controversial question, but what is this podcast about, if not those things, but about implicit bias itself. And here, and I want to get your thoughts on it because okay. I think it's a part of how you can make these things, according to the data, more successful is to let people come into the training already with a sense of how they are implicitly you know, biased in their day-to-day so that when you hit them with the diversity training, it'll kind of stick, right? Right. So in thinking about this, here's a part that I've been, it's been difficult for me to reconcile and I, I definitely want your thoughts on it. The whole idea of implicit bias is for us as individuals to recognize that we approach every human interaction with some kind of preconceived notion, right? Right. Like whatever it is, because we're human, because, you know, our ancestors and, you know, their kind of evolution and we just respond to certain inputs and stimuli in a particular way. And that can manifest itself as a bias, whether, you know, as a negative feeling towards something just because we're human, right? So that idea of implicit bias, I can completely get behind. But the part that I have a little bit of a difficulty with is this idea that implicit bias is bad, right? This idea that I I naturally feel more comfortable around people that look like me. I naturally kind of want to be around like-minded people, all of this kind of implicit, you know, bias constellation of things. That seems like it's a bad thing. 
But at the same time, we, th- we say that it's a good thing for people to see themselves reflected in things. For the, one of the best motivators of a young, you know, in my case, a young Latino, as, as I was coming up, was to see other Latinos succeeding. And I agree right. with that too. But isn't that kind of the, in the same food group of this implicit bias that I feel more apt to succeed if I can see people that look like me and have my experience doing the things that I want? And so, like, reconciling those thoughts has been a struggle yeah. for me. You're, am I saying it the right way? Uh, yeah, I, I know where you're going with this. I think I know where you're going with this. Um, but I think you're actually talking about different things. One is levels of comfort, right? Yeah. And to your point, there are, you know, certain scenarios, certain people that we just are more naturally comfortable with because we're much more familiar with those people, right? Part of it comes to, depending on where you grew up, kind of family you're around, if even the cases where you're part of a big family versus a small family, different scenarios just are much more comfortable to you. And I think that's okay. That's just part of who we are. And it does fall in the same category of having implicit biases because it does speak to the things that we we don't say, but we definitely feel, right? And so, you can be so, both and I, I, a I don't positive interrupt. and negative thing. I don't want to interrupt you, but just so I make sure I'm, under, I'm tracking with you. So what yeah. you're saying is then implicit bias doesn't necessarily equal bad is what you're saying. For sure, no. It okay, does, it, yeah, because see, for I, sure. think, I think, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I think when people hear implicit bias, they hear bad. Like that's right. something to avoid. No, I, I hear you on that. Okay. Uh, and, and I think some people think of it that I don't. Okay. Right, so let me give you an example of that. Um, when I see an, an older Latino, whether he's in a working scenario or not, that looks like, and not to sound controversial, that he's probably a recent immigrant. Mm-hmm. I think first generation, first generation, first generation. Mm -hmm. I think of hard worker. That's actually the the connotation that comes to my mind when I think when I see a person like that, Mm -hmm. they could be working or not working. But I think of someone that probably has sacrificed quite a bit in their life and is not afraid of hard work. Now, that is a bias that I have. By the way, I know nothing of this person. They could be the laziest person (laughs) in the world. Yeah. But I see them, someone that has, you know, that looks like they've been on the sun for way too long, that has already too many wrinkles. You can literally see like the years of, impact to their body of probably work. And I think of someone that works really hard, right? Now, this is me not knowing anything about that person. That is, an, that is a bias that I have, right, about, about them. I don't know if it's someone we say it was negative. I don't think it's negative, but I could also see sort of the inverse of me well, thinking I, about I, that I, way about somebody else. But I don't mean that the bias that you, the thing you are biased against is negative. I mean, just the idea, the idea that bias it. is negative is what I think when people just generally speaking, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so, that when people hear implicit bias, they see that as something they should not have or should try to avoid. Right. And I think that the way you just presented it, which I happen to agree with, is something that then enables you to reconcile both thoughts, which is I can have not all implicit bias is bad or, right. or, or automatically bad. Or automatically bad, right. Automatically bad. Therefore, it is okay for me to be motivated by people who look like me doing certain things, right? But I think if you don't have that, if you don't have that, if you say implicit bias is always bad, then it's hard for me to understand why it would be okay for me to also say, hey, we should have more, you know, representation is good because it motivates people to do that, right? Right. It just seems like it's, it would be more contrary in that example than the one you've laid out. Yeah. So I think, yeah. So bias is not always a, a bad thing. I think where, where it starts becoming problematic is when you start thinking about, well, what informs that bias? I think that's, that's mm, honestly, okay. in my mind, the biggest problem right now. 
part of what could inform it could be literally not having information, meaning like I just don't interact much with a specific group, a specific type of person. And therefore, every set of bias that I have about them is probably negative because of just not having proximity, right? The other thing too, which it goes back to really more closely to our work day to day, which is when that bias is mostly informed by media that we consume. And when that media that we're consuming tends to have a very negative representation about a specific group of people, right? So when they think of someone that is young Latino, are they thinking, oh, this must be a, you know, someone that's a gang member? Well, why would someone think that they're a gang member? Well, maybe the only interaction they've ever seen, a it's not many interactions, and the only version that they've seen of this kind of person is in film and TV when they're typically the criminal. That's when that, that is sort of implicit bias can get built. That is a very negative thing but because it's, it's not actually informed by day-to-day interaction, which goes back to what we were talking about, why I think part of the way you solve for better diversity training understanding is, is actually has to be through uh, actual exposure, which is really hard to do when you actually don't have, in some cases, people that yeah. can help actually represent that and, and, and bring that proximity. That's super interesting. And, and just not to get theological here, but to take an example that's interesting from my standpoint from theology, there's this idea of our human conscience and that we have to abide by what, what our conscience tells us to do. And then to not do that in, in Christian theology, to not abide by your conscience is actually to sort of sin against yourself, right? You need to do what you believe. But then the counterpoint would be, well, wait a minute, let's look at Hitler or Ted Bundy or any of these guys, they were doing what they believe. So you can't just follow your conscience. And then the way that the theologian would respond to that is it's not just following your conscience, but following a well-formed conscience. So it's not just conscience carte, you know, right. carte blanche. And it, it's interesting because what you just said is it has to be like informed bias, right? It's, it's, or, or however you said it, but basically right. like you have to, it's got to be well-informed. It can't just be based on like this little myopic view of the universe yeah, and therefore and, and your bias so, will come out As an wrong. example of that, now we, I actually can't share the source because it's actually one of our clients in engagement, but I thought was, I was blown away and, and I think you're in, a, in two seconds you figure out what I'm going to talk about, which is in a, in a recent engagement that we were doing, you know, one of the, the things that we were looking at was better understanding attitudes that a, a certain group had relative to another group, in this case Latinos, relative to Latinos, what they had, uh, you know, what kind of, what was their attitude against that that group? And we looked at it relative to how many Latinos in population were, I guess, in that specific setting. And what we found was that in settings where there were more Latinos present, the attitudes by everybody else towards those Latinos all of a sudden increased, yeah. was significantly higher in terms of attitude towards better intent, well, like good intent, yeah. right? Good intent and involvement, good intent across a couple of different categories that we looked at. In the cases where there were less Latinos, what we found is that the, not that they thought they were bad, it's just that their attitude, their, their, their sort of perceptions of them were significantly lower. They the were expectations much lower expectations. were lower. Yeah, yeah better, better word to say. Yeah. Much lower expectations. Um, and I found that completely fascinating. fascinating. It was yeah. like, part of it is that we just don't know them. So therefore, our whatever sort of, you know, perception we have of them is going to be just more negative because we they're just not in our sort of circle, right? They're not like close friends and therefore we just so, sort of maybe distrust a little bit more. And I thought that dynamic, while I could maybe could somewhat expect it, but it wasn't actually seeing the actual data there. It blew me away when I saw that kind of stats. Yeah, no, I know. And you were, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, but I think it's um, maybe the, the sort of the other side of the coin of the whole idea of exposure, right? Which we were, we were talking about, right? This idea that the more that you become familiar with a particular group, your your perspective on them, 
your level of outlook on what they're capable of, the just the aperture begins to open and you give that group a kind of the benefit of the doubt or or really in the in the data that we found, we actually just found all the positive metrics went up, right? So the idea that that Latinos were interested in things. It was like, right. oh, for sure they're interested in this, and they're also interested in this, but when you didn't have any Latinos, you're like, yeah, I don't think they care about that stuff. Yeah, it, that was so interesting, it, it right? was, yeah. yeah, and I'm sure that, that that's, I mean, you could do a lot with that in different sort of applications, but it's definitely fascinating stuff. You know, and, and just going back to some of the, the least of the different types of programs that they found to be much more effective in the same study, one that I found, a couple of things. One, one was an actual recruitment, right? So when there were specific recruitment processes or, yeah, I guess programs, uh, especially college recruitment, again, focused on women or minority, those had a very positive impact uh, across the board. They're just more focused, more tailored, right? In the case of Hispanic women, it was like a 10% increase in representation there when you had these college recruitment efforts uh, specifically focused against women. When you had the same thing for minorities, sort of same thing, you, now you saw a big jump, almost 8% for black men, almost 9% for black women in representation when you had these, these, these different programs. That makes sense. One that I love, and it was almost, I think it might have been the highest one or, or second highest one, is, was actually mentoring programs. Mentoring programs had a significant increase in the amount of representation. There was an 80% jump in representation from black women based on having mentoring programs that are focused on diversity. For Hispanic women, it was almost 24% increase. And mentoring just connotes getting closer to people. That's right. And, and I mean, you know, and I think that's, that's actually, I love that. That that one, I think part of all of them, probably the one that stood out to me the most, because it speaks to the importance of once you get people in an organization is what are you doing to help them grow in their career, to evolve, right? Because it's not just about bringing someone in. You know, we know that how much churn can happen in organizations when people come in and they feel lost, they, they don't connect. They feel like there's only one of them, especially for organizations that are maybe struggling with representation of diversity within their org. Look, to the degree that they're investing and focusing on, on bringing more people uh, that could represent the different diverse groups, good. But the other, like that's half the battle, maybe less than half. The other big chunk of it is how do you keep them there? How do you keep them engaged? How do you make sure that they're not just you know coming on board initially, but staying with you and actually growing and you're getting the most value out of them? And this notion of mentoring as being a tool to make sure that you're bringing people really into the fold and you're actually helping them, guide them through their career, uh, I think it's super, super important and maybe one that we don't talk enough about. But that's just, that, it follows to me, it's just taking a personal interest in another human being and that that's going to resonate and actually have better results than just, you know, dealing with things through like a textbook or some, you know, distant set of like KPIs that we're all trying to achieve, especially in mandatory settings, right? So you can see the difference, you know, right away. Uh, I mean, at least I can just intuitively by hearing you explain those those statistics. I think the, the other thing, and I, 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 I go back, 20 minutes now. I don't think I, I, I said that I was sort of, you know, inherently a little suspicious of diversity trainings just in their own right, for the reasons that I mentioned that I think it gives people a big box to check. The other one that I that, that I that I have as well that I wanted to just kind of hear your thoughts on 
um, is the idea of the definitions around what diversity is, right? We've talked about on this show and at other times kind of our definition of diversity inclusive of, I think, everything that is commonly understood as diversity, but then also including diversity of perspective, diversity of opinion. This show is born out of the fact that you and I had a lot of conversations every day coming from things in a very different perspective, oftentimes disagreeing. And we're like, wait a minute, how come we don't kind of hear this stuff a lot, right? So this idea of having different points of view and still being able to interact and work together and all that stuff. I think that's also something that in the diversity programs and training I've been a part of, there's very little emphasis paid to that. Paid to that. It, there's much more emphasis on kind of, you know, characteristics that may be immutable, things like ethnicity or gender, stuff like that, and much less about, you know, people's different perspectives. Here's why I think this is really important too. Mm-hmm. Because I think if we really stop for a second and think about the importance of multiculturalism, the importance of diversity, the reason why it's important, like the real reason why, is because if there's people from different life experiences, you're going to hear different ways of doing certain things, right? Different perspectives on the world. That's, to my mind, like one of the principal benefits of wanting to have diversity of ethnicity even. Like the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the whole idea of the American experiment is based on the fact that you take all these different cultures from all over the world and colors and perspectives and you bring them together and their, their different perspective kind of gets woven into a tapestry that ends up being a really good thing. That was the original promise of the United States. Right. But I feel that the kind of diversity trainings that, that again, I've been familiar with, and I'm not suggesting I've, I know all of them, but the ones that I've been familiar with tend to emphasize the kind of immutable stuff, the ethnic, the race, the gender, and we kind of forget about the perspectives and the positions. And I feel I feel like that's got to be part of the mix to, to drive, you know, kind of yeah, success. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think there's there's probably two main reasons as to why that's the case. I think one is much, much harder to measure, right? So think about that, right? Everything you say about the, the, the traditional ways to think about, uh, traditional, but, you know, traditional ways of looking at diversity, when it is about ethnicity, when it is about uh, gender, those you can very quickly do a poll. I mean, you could figure it out really fast where you are and, and sort of assess how well you're progressing. Um, to measure diversity of thought is much, much harder to do, right? But honestly, that's not really the reason. In my mind, the reason is because it's so much harder to actually live up to that. Because as much as mm. all of us try to be open, and even for those that, for those that are actually trying, because I think it's people that, that don't care to have any kind of diversity of thought, but even for, for those that do believe or do like truly believe that they want to have, they want to hear different opinions and, and have diversity of thought, it's really hard to do. It really is. I, I like to think that I'm pretty open-minded. I'm obviously pretty left-leaning in a lot of my ideology, but I'm pretty open-minded and will listen to, and even the discussion that you and I have, Charlie, about some things, but, but there's times where like, I don't want to hear it, honestly. Like, yeah. I found myself in consuming media and looking at of what I give attention to and what I don't, like just literally just skip right over. Um, it's like, I, I have to hold myself pretty accountable a lot of times and force myself to either have a conversation that I really don't want to have and actually try to listen to it um, because it's so, so hard to do. And I think that's a big part of the reason why you see these programs really focus more on the things that are easier to measure and to some extent, even though diversity is not easy, easier to sort of sell into an organization that can say, like, uh, fine, I, I get why you want to have these different types of people in the, even if it's a pure HR purposes within an org, but having diversity of thought, I think, is really, really hard. 
Yeah, and 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 I hear that, but it just sounds like it's a very important muscle that we should individually want to strengthen and cultivate and that organizations we should want to drive because again, from my standpoint, it's kind of the reason why diversity and multiculturalism is important to begin with. Like yeah. it's not just somebody waking up and going, I decided that I'd like to have lots of different colored people of all varieties in a particular place. It's yeah, the fact it's that great. we know, yeah. right, that if we have different people from different places and different different colors, that they're going to offer us different ways of looking at things. And ultimately, it seems like a lot of these training programs, at least to my mind, have kind of forgotten that. And I, and I think yeah. that that's, you know, it's got to be at least, you know, this can be in the soft side. Let's say it's not a hard KPI. I get it. But to me, it's maybe something that a facilitator can help with. Maybe there are examples that can be, you know, talked about. I think that, and we've definitely talked about this, I think that like the media universe right now is woefully inadequate in forums that are just about having conversations about one subject from different perspectives. Like there's so few of those that I think there's like a whole series of things that could be done in support of that kind of thing, especially in diversity training. Yeah. So on, on the diversity of, of thought w was really interesting. So I, I had this conversation a few weeks back um, and it was actually in direct response to one of the previous episodes that we recorded in this podcast where we were talking about actually the one that you mentioned earlier about the Boston Consulting Group um, study that we that we quoted and the, the impact that diversity had in um, in, uh, in innovation revenue, right? And, and this point about diversity of thought was one that I was having a conversation around and I was being challenged on that, right? And the, the question was like, but why do you think, I mean, I was really uh, being asked directly, why do you think that like, and it was interesting, not just being challenged, but the reason why. He was like, well, why would I want to have work with someone that doesn't share my same values? And I paused for a second. I'm like, that's a good question. I'm like, well, wait, 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 let's, let's actually pause for that. Like, I think it's a really good thing that you're actually bringing up. It's like, so if your point is that you don't want to work with people that don't have the same, the same values, well, let's start with the, let's take a step back it's really important that you have the same corporate values, right? Which are different than your personal values. Like the things that here that we're going to agree on how we're going to operate. It's also extremely important that you have the same, that you both buy into the same mission of what you're trying to do as a mission and vision we're trying to do as a company. That's one thing, but that's not the same thing as basically having someone that's going to agree with you on everything or look at the world in the exact same way that you do. Because if you have multiple people that look at the world the exact same way that you do, then no one's going to actually challenge your ideas to make them better. And I think that we sort of tend to confuse those two things together, that just because someone has a different experience growing up, even a different set of personal values, it doesn't mean that they are in contradiction to the, to the overall strategy, vision, goals of what your organization is trying to do. You may have a different approach how you think it needs to be done, but I guess the argument that I would make, I think that's a good thing because by having a different point of view, a different approach, it actually forces you to actually make sure that you're covering all your bases, that you don't have any blind spots. And, to, and that's basically what I told him. I was like, listen, I think that's actually the biggest issue when you don't have diversity is that you you basically don't cover your blind spots because if you have two people that have the exact same way of thinking, it's really hard to uncover those those areas and may actually make a critical business mistake by, by, not, by not having that. But I, I find it really interesting in, in this conversation of, of values that came in pretty quickly as to part of the reason why they didn't want to even engage on someone that maybe doesn't even share the same political ideology as an example. I wanted to basically even wanted to work with them. 
So it's maybe a rare thing, but perhaps it shouldn't be that I'm going to make two kind of interesting potential theological points related to what you just described. But when you were just sharing what you were saying about the comment that somebody gave you, I was thinking about the idea, which originally comes from, you know, from scripture about steel sharpening steel, right? That the fact is that you can help make the world and your own relationships better by kind of testing them against something that's equally formidable. That's how you think about it. That's how we like work out, right? We do hard stuff so we can kind of get better. Mm -hmm. And the same is true ideologically, because I would answer the question that that person made to you about why you'd want to work with people that have a different set of values is so I could kind of sort of test and, and, and prove my own thoughts of, of things. And I could understand them. Like you can't understand your own stuff if it's in relation to nothing else. Right. So it actually helps you understand what you believe when you match your beliefs against people who have maybe equally strong held ones that are not like yours. They help you understand your own position and to the extent that you can be wrong about something. Well, like how the heck are you going to learn that thing unless somebody opens the door and lets you see it, right? So I, I think it's a much bigger principle. And I understand the question that the person made of you, uh, uh, you know, of you, but I, I think it's kind of precisely the thing that I think is wrong in a lot of our, uh, on our car, you know, current discourse, because we can be so surrounded by just our own opinion and other people who are exactly the same, think exactly the same thing, are going to vote exactly the same way, have the same exact musical kind of things. I think we can do that in 2020 in a different way than we ever could in human history, let alone American history, because we can kind of program our media and we can program right, our social yeah. and like we can just literally be in our own bubble. And I think that that, you know, I hate laying everything at the feet of social media because it's not fair, but that's been a big part of why this country's so polarized right now is because we've been in these bubbles like, well, I know I'm right. And the other person's like, I know I'm right. And like, they're never engaging. So they're just kind of throwing rocks at each other. Yeah, and I think the other thing too is you have, look, we're living in a, in a time where we have a president who's like the perfect representation of that dynamic of polarization. And going back to what we're saying about how hard it is to listen to diversity and thought, I'll be honest, I have a hard time listening to President Trump. Mm-hmm. I can't listen to him. Actually, I have to read it because his voice annoys me. Mm-hmm. Like just hearing, it doesn't yeah. matter what he's saying. It could literally be like, He's reading the Constitution, right? Or, or something like that, my favorite book. But just hearing him, his tone, pattern of, of, of speech, honestly, annoys me, mm-hmm. you know, which is, which mm-hmm. is you know, kind of funny. But I have to read it when, whenever it comes to it. I can't watch it. I can't hear him. He's got to be really hard to read, though. I mean, it's like, yeah, he's not, but, even, but even then, it's like, it's he's not an the orator. Only way you know I can, I mean? So when you, when you read what he says, it probably sounds like. Yeah, but, but honestly, to me, it's the only way I can, I can actually try to consume something that he says because I just have such a negative reaction to him, right? It's funny how Trump reads is how Biden sounds. To, to my mind, you know what I mean? Because like you're reading it, I'm sure it's a bunch of ums and ahs and right, right. N- unfinished thoughts and like a bunch of stuff. But when you're hearing him say it, it because you understand the, where he comes from, or is this kind of like business kind of guy, it doesn't ring as weird as when you hear Biden not finish a sentence and it's like, wait a minute, where'd the rest of the sentence go? Yeah, but it just makes it, it, just yeah. makes it hard. And I think it's, it's, it's unfortunately, it's, he is the, 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 in my mind, the work product of years and years of... This this pattern we've been going through as a as a country, maybe globally as well, of more and more polarization, right? Less and less bridging in the middle. And, uh, yeah, I guess you know coming to the middle, and you see reflected in media is definitely in politics, 
right? This whole thing of people trying to go across the aisle, that doesn't exist anymore. That used to be a big thing that people had and we're proud of. And you just don't see that anymore as something that's valued. But I think what you just admitted though is actually a a big thing. And I think we need to do more of that and show that kind of vulnerability and the fact that you're like, hey, it's a struggle to go and hear these thoughts. It is a muscle you got to flex. It is absolutely a muscle you have to flex to go out and get this information from a bunch of different sources and like kind of grin and bear it. But it's something that I think is going to make us individually stronger and hopefully make the country better because I don't think it happens with the alternative, the alternative of kind of putting our heads down, whether it's diversity training or it's something else. I think we're seeing the fruit of that and it ain't good. You know, one of the one of the principles that I've personally used in how I try to manage myself and, and in working with groups um, has been historically is is in, and I have like six of them that I've that I've used over over time. But one is, is uh, treat feedback as a gift, right? And what I always say about feedback is that you have to separate the what someone is telling you versus how they're telling you, because if you focus on the how they're telling you, usually feedback comes not. Typically not because of want to be proactive of being something good that just happened. Uh, otherwise, it's more like a compliment rather than feedback. Uh, but it usually it comes in the form of frustration. Something bad has already happened. So you already know the how is coming is going to be negative. And if your immediate reaction is to shut down to that, which is a very natural thing to do, then you're going to miss what could be actually very valuable things that are being shared with you that you actually have to look at. So I've tried over <laughs> over time to take the time to pause and then reflect on what I've, even in cases where, I, and there's plenty of times where when I hear feedback, I don't respond well to it. Maybe dismissive, maybe just not listening, but I try to reflect and then try to separate out sort of fact from fiction. I mean, I will say even in this, when we were prepping for this conversation, when you first sent me the memorandum that was sent out by the White House, my initial thing like, oh, I do not want to read a memorandum coming out of this presidency, which is goes back to like I have a very strong negative reaction, unfortunately, mm-hmm. to to the president. But then I'm like, okay, let me take a breath, let me read it. Okay, fine. Is there truth in anything that's being said? But it, it just goes back to, and this is for you know for us that I, I would like to think that we're a little bit better, or at least more conscious. Maybe better is the wrong word, but more conscious of the fact how big of a factor it plays when you're not being open minded to diversity of thought, and even in those scenarios, how difficult it actually is. Yeah. Well said. So as we kind of wrap this conversation up around diversity, would you, could you kind of crystallize your thoughts on, you know, how you feel about diversity training and what your perspective is on that? Yeah, I think training without uh, doing is never going to work. I, I, I think it's really hard to pick any kind of, of, of actual skill that you're trying to pass through with anyone and say that by simply sitting through a couple a day or two days of actually just listening to someone else talk to you, maybe with a little bit of, of exercises as part of it, it's just a really hard way to be to be effective, right? Um, I think the biggest thing when it comes to diversity training are at least two things. One is without having exposure, without having a mechanism to create exposure, where people are actually get a chance at a personal level to get a chance to know each other, it's really, really hard to really create any kind of empathy between groups or people that don't that are not alike. That's one. I think the second thing, which is the, the part that I did love about seeing some of the diversity programs that were more effective is that getting people in the door that are diverse is half the problem. If you don't figure out how to basically be able to mentor, how to be able to help them grow, stay connected within their organization, it's going to be really, really tough. Now, and I've been in those situations in terms of having a pretty big team where we had one person that came in that was basically a different ethnic group than everybody else, 
only a couple of people. And as the leader, I, I definitely made it, made it my priority to make sure that I talk to that person. They're already kind of shy by nature, but I really try to go out of my way to make sure that they're being heard, embraced, calling them out specifically, meaning getting their thoughts out. I think you have to be, you have to go even, even further, further along to make sure that you're engaging these folks uh, in order to be able to really solve the problem. Because ultimately it's not about checking a box and having more sort of shades of color within an organization is, but how do I get the most value out of the group that I have as my part of my organization? How do I get the most thought, the most diversity in, in ideas so it can make me the best sort of organization possible? And how much can you give back to those same people when you actually do that, right? The benefit that you impart on them by having that perspective. I think the mentorship thing for me rang really, really clear for sure. I see examples of that in our entire career of things that we've heard of like, hey, we launched the Latino thing, but frankly, it didn't work. Or we launched the whatever, but we couldn't get any revenue from it. And then you look behind under the hood and you realize it was like, you know, they went 4% of the way into what requires 100% effort. And so I think that there's the same kind of dynamic that has that sadly can happen here where we're so focused on getting the right people in the door, but we're not really focused on how we actually take them and where we and how we mentor them and grow them. So I think the mentorship thing for me is really big. And then the other thing, um, you know, is the whole idea of really why we're doing this kind of diversity training for. We're doing this diversity training because fundamentally, even if you know it may not come across in these diversity trainings, there's great opportunity. There's great growth and thriving and potential in actually bringing people who have different perspectives and different worldviews into organizations and having them work together towards a common goal. Like the data is pretty clear on that. So for me, the kind of takeaway from here is that at least as it stands, most diversity programs kind of suck in terms of how they're put together, unfortunately. And I think that there's a great opportunity to kind of refix, you know, fix those and and re-engineer them to a better to a better outcome. I think the intent is definitely positive and something that we need to do, but we have to avoid at all costs the idea of um, you know, of of a checking a box, which is a major temptation right now, I think, for a lot of people. Well, thank you everybody for listening. As usual, we could probably talk for 10 more hours, but we're gonna call it now. And uh, I encourage everybody If you haven't yet, please follow us, uh, subscribe, uh, tell us how we're doing, uh, get in touch with us at blackbrown.us, and we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Capella University, 
you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.